Last winter, I asked my son to help me shovel snow on the driveway. He said, I'd love to, but I have trouble with my back. I asked, what's the trouble? And he said, I can't get it off the bed. Was this exaggeration, poor effort, or malingering? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is forensic neuropsychologist, Dr. Robert Heilbronner. Dr. Heilbrunner is an assistant clinical professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago, Illinois. He is a member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Neuropsychology and chairs its practice guidelines working group. He is the consulting neuropsychologist to the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team. Today, we are discussing malingering. Hi, Dr. Heilbrunner. Thanks for joining us today at the Clinician's Roundtable. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. Now, malingering is not something of which doctors are frequently accused. In fact, you may remember that physicians' work hours have been restricted not too long ago. And being a type A personality myself, and having stayed up way past my bedtime to prepare for our chat today, malingering is sort of a foreign word to me. How would you define it, and how does it differ from exaggeration and poor effort? There are different definitions of malingering that people have used throughout time and and even currently, but the one that the DSM-IV, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Disorders, uses is malingering is the uh, intentional or purposeful production or exaggeration of physical or psychological symptoms for external reward. So the important point there is it's purposeful or under the conscious control of the individual, and there's some kind of reward, usually financial compensation, at the end. I mean, I was going to give my son 10 bucks to do the driveway. (laughs) I guess that didn't count. No, it Uh, wasn't enough incentive, I think. Are there other types of malingering, partial, and I've heard the term false imputation. I'm not sure what that means. That's a new term for me, too. There are different types of malingering. People can choose to malinger in the cognitive or thinking realm, and in my practice, uh, it's typically in the area of memory where people will tend to exaggerate. There's also uh, physical malingering, much like what you said with your son, where a person may exaggerate or complain about uh, physical symptoms that have no physiological basis. And then there's emotional exaggeration, uh, additionally, uh, exaggeration of psychopathology. For example, with criminal defendants, they often malinger or feign psychosis as a way to perhaps get a, uh, a lesser sentence or to be found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, for example. Now, again, malingering falls within a larger category of um, secondary gain. Uh, certainly, people can exaggerate claims of disability and injury for reasons besides financial remuneration, uh, certainly getting attention or nurturance from others, getting attention from the medical professionals are other sort of examples of secondary gain that may not necessarily be malingering per se. Are there any profiles of a malingerer? Can you spot one? Or what does somebody do in the workplace? That's a great question. It is very difficult to detect a malingerer. The fact is, is malingering is really, quote, real-world behavior. And the best that we can do as neuropsychologists is to administer reliable and valid measures of effort to see whether the person really is putting forth maximal effort during the exam, whether their test results are consistent with what we would expect for their condition that they're complaining about, or are they showing severe impairment that's above and beyond that, which might be explained in the case of, let's say, a mild injury or a concussion. So 
We do have various measures that we use as neuropsychologists, but the fact is we need to kind of go outside of the laboratory and clinical setting in order to see whether the person is consistent in their complaints with what they say to you during the exam. So, for example, if somebody's saying, you know, I'm so, in so much pain, I can't even drive a car, yet lo and behold, there's evidence either from video surveillance or through some other means of the person driving a car, they're in essence reporting something that's inconsistent from their day-to-day activities. I guess I better watch out for those cameras they're putting up by the traffic lights. <laughs> <laughs> they might be sharing them with my boss. Who knows what those are for, you know? But, you know, when the person's saying uh, things that are inconsistent with what they're actually doing, that should raise a little bit of a red flag on the part of a clinician. And how do you get involved? Who would bring in the neuropsychologist? Well, I would say most often in cases of malingering, it's usually a referral from a a disability insurance carrier or from an attorney in a, a personal injury or medical malpractice case. Certainly, though, in my clinical practice, when a physician is wondering whether or not their patient's claims are exaggerated and there's no physical pathology to explain their complaints, the physician may refer to someone uh, such as myself to see whether there are psychological and emotional contributions or purposeful exaggeration of symptoms and complaints. Could you give us a real-life example of someone who sort of got his hand caught in the cookie jar and the role you played in ferreting out the individual? Certainly. There are cases where I've been involved in over many years of uh, individual who has a simple fender bender in a parking lot of a, of a supermarket where a vehicle may strike them from behind with a force of impact that is perhaps less than you know two or three miles an hour and there's no loss of consciousness the person is not even dazed at all they get out of car and, and uh, may complain to the person who struck them and there's no acute symptoms at all But then lo and behold, later on, they're complaining of headaches and memory problems and all sorts of things that they regard as rendering them as disabled from doing their job or other daily activities. And then when they were referred to me, for example, to test them because the insurance carrier, the disability carrier, or an opposing attorney saying, you know what, this person's injury doesn't really seem to fit with the nature of the accident, I may examine them and find that there's gross exaggeration and they're appearing as if they've been in a coma for several days or weeks, and that just doesn't make neuropsychological sense given the nature of the forces that struck the car from behind. I'd like to pause for a moment to welcome those who have just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking today with forensic neuropsychologist Dr. Richard Heilbronner. We are discussing malingering. Is everyone who goofs off malingering, or are there different motivating factors? Oh, undoubtedly, there, there are different motivating factors. One thing I failed to mention is the unconscious creation of physical or psychological symptoms. Uh, an individual may exaggerate or complain of things that don't have any physiological basis, but they're not purposefully or consciously doing. It's more unconscious as a result of other psychological or emotional conditions. And that, that's called a somatoform disorder, which is very different from malingering. But it's very hard to get inside the mind of a person to see whether they're consciously doing it or unconsciously. And that's why we have developed tests in neuropsychology that get the degree to which the person is purposefully putting forth a bad effort or exaggerating versus otherwise. Do you ever see people who malinger that it's really a cry for help, that they're seeking some sort of recognition for their problems? You know, that's a really good question, and that happens uh, often. And I think it's really important not to be too skeptical as a, uh, a clinician that if someone's coming in and exaggerating, 
one should be really um, cautious about using the term malingering because basically you're accusing the person of fraud, which in itself is a criminal sort of action. There may be a lot of psychological reasons why the person is appearing worse than they should be. And, you know, the sensitive clinician will do a careful interview and try to get a good understanding of the person's psychology and their history and the role that the accident and the symptoms are playing in their life before they can really opine with any certainty whether the symptoms are due to malingering or some other cause. There have got to be times when your gut tells you this person is malingering. I mean, they're just a lazy, no-good faker. But it's a situation where you've been hired by a defendant. How do you maintain your objectivity? How do you handle that situation? I mean, there have got to be some ethical, moral considerations on your part. Well, indeed, there are. And there are various ethical guidelines that we have to follow as neuropsychologists when we do our examinations. I would have to say in my 20-year career, I've used the formal term malingering probably less than 10 times because, as I said before, that's accusing somebody of fraud. And uh, I want to be 100% certain before I make that diagnosis. However, there are multiple cases in which I've used the term insufficient effort, inadequate effort, a patient's symptoms don't make neuropsychological sense, all which suggests that there's something going on here that doesn't make sense but I really want to have all the information before I would use the term malingering. So, you know, until we have very clear objective evidence from our tests, uh, I would be really loath to use that pejorative term, but there are other ways that we can really capture what's going on. Are there some tests you could name or, you know, the ones that are most commonly used and what they're best used for? Well, there are a number of newer measures of effort that have been developed over the years, and I have to say that neuropsychology as a discipline is probably best suited to assess malingering and effort more than any other discipline, and that's one reason why our field gets referrals from neurologists and neurosurgeons, attorneys, uh, insurance companies to look at effort. There are various forced choice is the term, memory tests, like something called the, uh, the test of memory malingering or the word memory test the Victoria symptom validity test. But even beyond these tests, which have been developed to look at effort, many of our traditional neuropsychological measures are also useful for assessing effort and malingering. And we do that by looking at whether or not the person's performance makes neuropsychological sense, given what we know about their condition and what we expect to occur in these kinds of injuries, whether it's a mild concussion or a severe brain injury, whether it's a seizure disorder, whether it's toxic exposure, there are various patterns that you'd expect to see. And if the individual that we're examining shows a pattern that's inconsistent with what we would expect, again, that should raise a red flag on the part of the clinician that something else is going on here that we have to really explore further. Is it important to remember, especially for the person who may have hired you, that My understanding is that an effort test does not measure malingering, per se, but measures the behavior associated with malingering? You know, that's a very good point, and I think sometimes neuropsychologists will inaccurately use these tests to support a diagnosis of malingering. But as I said earlier, the the best that we can say if somebody does poorly on these measures of effort is that the testing is invalid and that the person's complaints cannot really be determined as having a, a verifiable basis. So I'd be really reluctant and would express caution with any neuropsychologist going from the test results to just automatically saying the person's malingering. Could you tell me, who is the best all-time malingerer you've ever encountered? Well, you know, there is a case, I wasn't involved in it myself, but a well-known case of a mobster out of New York who was alleging dementia 
I think his name was the, the bathrobe mobster or something. <laughs> I, I can't recall specifically, but he was actually examined by some neuropsychologists and, as I understand it, was able to even dupe a couple of them. But <laughs> it seemed to become quite clear over time that he was feigning and exaggerating his psychiatric and dementia-like symptoms in order to kind of delay his lawsuit and, you know, for other sort of uh, legal purposes. But for me, I see other more common things, uh, like I referred to earlier, where a person is claiming in my office that they can't do things like drive a car or can't cut the lawn, and lo and behold, I'm able to get surveillance videos and show that these people are doing exactly what they say they can't do. So I wish I had more exciting tales to tell, but those are the kinds of things that I typically see. I would like very much, as we close our show, to thank Dr. Robert Heilbrunner for being my guest today. We've been discussing malingering. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.